We know Georgia politics from Peachtree Street to Pennsylvania Avenue. Politically Georgia podcast delivers exclusive news and analysis five days a week by a team of veteran political insiders watching your public officials. Hosted by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Greg Bluestein, Bill Nygut, Tia Mitchell, and Patricia Murphy. Listen weekdays at 10 a.m. on WABE 90.1. Stream everywhere or at AJC.com forward slash podcasts. News and analysis five days a week from Politically Georgia podcast. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the Hill. I'm Tom Fitzgerald. Joining us this time, Alan Lickman. He is a professor of political science at the American University and a political historian of note. He has correctly predicted the presidential election in 2016 and the late eight presidential races. Alan Lickman, thanks for joining us on the Hill. My pleasure. Um, A lot of people know you from these predictions 2016 especially when you predicted Donald Trump was going to be elected a lot of people you're sitting across from one of them kind of looked at you and said are you sure you were sure why were you sure I was sure because I wasn't just guessing I have a system called the 13 keys to the White House which I developed in 1981 in collaboration with one of the world's leading mathematicians of uh, Volodya Kailas Borak, and it's been right, as you indicate, in the last nine elections. And the 13 key system is based on the proposition that American presidential elections are essentially votes up or down on the party holding the White House. And these are factors that measure the strength and performance of that party. And if six or more go against the party holding the White House. Last time, the Democrats, they are predicted losers. So I was able to ascertain using that system that 2016 was going to be a change election. So it's not just that the economy is good. You have to look at all of these metrics in order to make an accurate prediction. That's right. The decision-making is much broader. I do have two economic keys, but I also have keys relating to third-party movements, midterm election results, foreign policy successes and failures, scandals, social unrest, and others. In fact, if you were to predict based on the economy alone, you would have predicted Hillary Clinton win, as most people did. Now, you're a political scientist, and I think sometimes when people refer to political scientists, they tend to gloss over the scientist part of it because in, in essence what you're doing is is you you've built an experiment here and it also raises the question in something like politics does gut matter at all do you have to force yourself to put that thought out of your head of uh you know this is how I maybe feel about something, or this is how I have emotionally reacted to something. As a scientist, as a political yep. scientist, you have to really be on guard to make sure that that does not seep into your mind. Yeah, I'm actually a political historian, yeah. so but that's okay. It doesn't make much difference. Uh, you're absolutely right, Tom. The hardest thing in being a successful forecaster is not knowing history, although you got no history. It's not knowing politics, although you got no politics. It's not knowing math, although you got no math. It's putting aside your own political perspective. If you can't do that, you're worthless as a forecaster. A great friend of mine is Rich Bond, former chairman of the Republican National Committee and a big fan of the Keys. A number of years ago, he was running a fundraiser 
for the reelection of George W. Bush. And he handed out the keys and said, after lunch, fill it out. And an answer of true would favor the election of Bush. And after everyone fills it out, he says, and how many of you had 13 trues? And everybody raises their hand. Mm -hmm. I've predicted five Republican wins and four Democratic wins in my predictive lifetime. Raises the question, why were the 2016 polls so wrong? And have any changes been made in your view that would make the 2020 polls more believable or more accurate? Problem with polls are twofold. First of all, you shouldn't use them as forecasts at all. They're not forecasting tools. They're snapshots. And things can immediately change after the snapshot. And So why to, do we rely on them so much? Because they're easy. You don't have to get out of bed in the morning to write a story about the polls. So polls and money tend to dominate political coverage. Second thing about the polls is they don't know who's actually going to vote. And uh, they've got a guess. So they call them likely voters, but we don't know how likely they are. I have nothing against polls. I have a lot against using them for forecasts. And it's still the old-fashioned methodology, for the most part, of calling somebody up at their house and then asking them. Exactly. You know, if the election were held today, who would you vote? Well, the election isn't being held today, of And also, course. I always wonder, like, who's still at their home who's picking up a phone? Well, they do use cell call. phones yeah, now, yeah. but they have very low response rates. People don't want to answer pollsters, and that's not the problem. So when they tell you the error margin is plus and minus 3%, that's statistical error. That doesn't take into account people deceiving you, changing their minds, or not voting. In 2016, one of the things that were talked about in the accuracy of polls is that there might have been secret Trump voters, people who liked Donald Trump, supported Donald Trump, were going to vote for Donald Trump, but wouldn't say that to a pollster. Do you, do you feel after now three years of the Trump presidency that's less likely or more likely to occur? I or did it, it occur at all? I think it may, you know, that's unmeasurable, of course, but it's, it's a reasonable conjecture along with the other problems with the polls. I think given how out front Donald Trump is, I don't think you're going to have too many secret uh, Trump voters, but early polls have zero value. Let's talk about impeachment. Um, yes. As we record this, the uh, Republican uh, defense team for President Donald Trump has uh, begun its defense of the president. Uh, we watched three days of opening statements by the House impeachment managers, the Democrats. Um, what's your takeaway on what you've seen uh, in the early, what you saw in the early days of the impeachment trial of President Donald I think both Trump. sides are, are doing a, a very good job of presenting their case. I do think uh, that the managers do have a, a thicker evidential base for their case. Uh, I also fundamentally disagree with the premise of the defense that you have to have an indictable crime for impeachment. No framer of the articles ever said that. There wasn't even a federal code of statutory crimes at the time. All the framers tracked what Alexander Hamilton said, which was a impeachment of flows from an abuse of power that harms the society. Bill Barr, the hand-picked attorney general, agreed with that in his 2018 memo to Trump that got him hired. 
Alan Dershowitz agreed with that 21 years ago until he changed sides. But what I think is most telling is Ken Starr, the independent counsel who investigated Bill Clinton and is now on the Trump team. One of the articles that he recommended should be impeachable, recommended this to the House, is, quote, President Clinton abused his constitutional authority, unquote. He did so by, among other things, quote, lying to the public, unquote, and, quote, invoking executive privilege, unquote, and, quote, all as part of an effort to hinder, impede, and deflect possible inquiry by the Congress of the United States, unquote. Sound familiar? Does a president have right to executive privilege? Absolutely. But uh, Trump did not claim executive privilege. Executive privilege is very specific to specific witnesses and specific questions. He claimed something that has no basis in the Constitution, in law, absolute immunity. So he went way beyond what Ken Starr charged Bill Clinton with. And by the way, this notion that you should go to court, it would certainly take us right through the election to litigate absolute immunity because you got to go through the district court, a court of appeals, an en banc court of appeals, then the Supreme Court. And even if you did miraculously get it done before the election, Trump would start the process all over again by then invoking executive privilege. So that's a disingenuous claim. But House managers in the House Democratic Caucus knew that going in, that to go through the regular channels would have taken forever. Correct. So did they do what the Republicans said, which is that they fast forwarded and they hurdled over a lot of steps that they should have taken because they knew that they had gone through those channels that you just listed? This never would have gotten to where it is right now. Right. They did what they could. You know, you have to deal with the practicalities of it. And they believed and I think you see they have a good case even without the blocked witnesses and the blocked documents, there's a lot there to establish their case. Plus, everything that has come out since then has strengthened their case. They had a couple of highlights. The Government Accountability Office said Trump broke the law. So what we have now is really a situation where while the House Democratic managers talk about the allegations, the president's team's so far seems to be arguing the process. Right. And, you know, if you don't have the facts, uh, you argue the law. If you don't have the facts of the law, you pound the table. You know, it was also Sherlock Holmes who said, when you eliminate the impossible, what's left, however improbable, is the truth. The Republican manager, uh, defenders would have us believe two impossible things, that President Trump was really fighting corruption and trying to get uh, Europe to pay more. If that were true, he wouldn't have to break the law and conceal this from Congress, as is required by law. Those were perfectly legitimate objectives, and he could have been absolutely public about them. As far as corruption, he never mentioned corruption on either conversation with Zelensky. His own administration had certified that Ukraine had met the anti-corruption benchmarks. He proposed drastic cuts in anti-corruption aid to Ukraine and never reviewed corruption during the hold, nor did he ever review uh, Europe's contributions during the, uh, during the hold. The day after his conversation with Zelensky, he calls Gordon Sondland, his European Union ambassador, the guy who'd be on point for Europe, 
And he didn't say anything about, have you checked with the European nations on their contributions? All he said was, are they doing the investigations that I want? You're listening to the On the Hill podcast from Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. This is the On the Hill podcast coming to you from the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. I'm Tom Fitzgerald. This time we're speaking with Alan Lickman. He is an American University professor and political historian. Uh, We've been talking about impeachment. And one of the things that the House Democratic leader, Senator Chuck Schumer, has been saying uh, over and over and over again is that if the Republicans are successful in moving this trial forward without witnesses and documents being added, that it would rob the president of being able to say that his name was cleared in all of this. Because Schumer's view is that the American people would look at this trial as not exonerating him because it was not a full trial. Where do you stand on that? I think there's some merit in that. I'm not sure you know all the American people would agree with that, but I think a good chunk would. Uh, some polls have shown 70% want to hear from Mick Mulvaney and John Bolton. I thought the highlight of the trial was something that hasn't gotten enough commentary, and that was when Hakeem Jeffries put up this chart of all 15 prior impeachments showing they all had witnesses, and the average number of witnesses was 33. The lowest was the Clinton trial, which had three, but independent counsel Ken Starr had already interviewed dozens of witnesses, including all of the president's men and women. One of the things that Democratic House managers have been doing or did throughout the trial is we have heard from some witnesses, but they've been able to deploy videotape excerpts from the House hearings. So, in effect, they've been kind of able to get around this issue of of no witnesses, but clearly... Do you feel it's as effective to have a month-old videotape of something Fiona Hill may have testified, devastating as it may be? But there's a big difference between that and Mick Mulvaney coming into the United States Senate or John Bolton coming into the United States Senate. Couldn't agree with you more. You know, trials have witnesses. And it would be a much better process, too, instead of having speakers going on for eight hours. If you had witnesses, you'd have dramatic testimony. You'd have examination. You'd have cross-examination. You know, I have actually been an expert witness in 100 federal and state trials. They all have witnesses. They all have cross-examination. And as we saw, every other impeachment trial does as well. And the president really wants to be exonerated. And if you're to believe his attorneys that he's done nothing wrong, why in the world would you block those witnesses? Ronald Reagan, when he was under investigation in the Iran-Contra scandal, the Republican icon said, I want every one of my aides and employees to testify. And they did. And, and they some did. of it was not very flattering. That's John right. Poindexter and Oliver North exactly. had things to say that really boosted the White House's case. And in the Clinton case, they all testified, and it wasn't all flattering. What's your sense? We started off the On the Hill television program today with a, with a live report from Iowa, and Reporter Ali Rafa, who we talked to, said this isn't something that the Iowa voters are really talking about. You know, it's impacted the Democrats because four of them, Michael Bennett, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar and Bernie Sanders, have to be back here in Washington when 
God forbid they'd have to do their job as senators instead of being off in Iowa running for president. But it does impact their campaigns. Um, but it doesn't seem like it's resonating out there in the country impeachment is that your sense because sometimes here you know in the beltway and i I, you know i'm not a beltway basher (laughs) but we do live in a bit of an echo chamber here no i think that's undoubtedly true and that's why the scandal is only one of my 13 keys it's a factor but by itself it's not a decisive factor i think that's right and is that the reason we don't see these democratic candidates talking about it that much I, I think that's true. And the truth is they don't have to. You know, it's out there. People can make up their own minds. The truth is there are three sets of audiences for this impeachment trial. One, of course, the actual jurors and senators. The second is history. And Trump cares about his legacy and his brand. And not getting a real uh, vindication is going to matter. And, of course, the third audience is the American people who are going to make up their minds about the process, but more importantly, whether or not they thought Trump did anything wrong, whether he's removed or not, the American people are going to decide whether this behavior was okay or not. As we look at the Democratic side of the 2020 race, uh, the polls in Iowa have kind of gone back and forth. Biden, Sanders, Warren, Buttigieg, they all seem to at one time or another occupy the top spot. Somebody slipped down, somebody moved up. Um, But when you look at the at the national polling that we've seen, Joe Biden does seem from wire to wire so far be a, a juggernaut. And is, is that something that you think is a reflection of Joe Biden or is it a rubber band effect of the Trump presidency? Maybe Obama nostalgia, something some of the voters. I think you hit it right on. I think it is a, a boomerang effect from the Trump presidency and a bit of Obama nostalgia. Because certainly Joe Biden himself is not exactly a firebrand of a campaigner. You know, at best he holds his own in the debates, but uh, he certainly does not shine. And you have to understand the bedrock of his support, though, which is going to be hard to shake, is African-American voters who don't change their minds readily. You need a record with, with that community. But let me say this. Things can change rapidly, as you know, in a primary contest. One primary impacts the next, which impacts the next. It's not like a presidential election where there's one decision day. There are more than 50 decision points. But it's not uncommon, especially amongst Democrats, for somebody to come out of Iowa and then that be the highlight of their campaign. That is always possible. But uh, Iowa can not so much make you, but it can, but it can break you. Mm-hmm. So we just don't know how these early primaries are going to come down. What do you think of the way we select these nominees? Does this still make sense in 2020? that we go to a a state like Iowa and they don't even have a primary. They have this caucus, which is hard for people to kind of understand how those things work. And then they go to New Hampshire and then we plot along state by state, region by region. Um, Is there a better way to do this? And I'm just, I'm not even getting to the electoral college right Right. now. Just talking about the way we we select these nominees. Yeah, I, I don't think it's very good that we have two states leading that are very much unrepresentative of a rapidly diversifying country. I'd much rather see larger, more representative states or a series of regional primaries that would really simplify it 
for the voters and the candidates. We've tried that in this area. They had the Potomac primary when some of the you know, regions around here uh, grouped together theirs. Yeah. But, you know, in, in large part, a lot of times the, 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 the race is over by the time it gets to the, you know, northeast. It can be. I'm, I'm going to yeah. say something fairly radical here. I'm not predicting it, but I think there's a fair chance we may see something we haven't seen in over half a century. That is a real convention that actually picks the nominee because it may well be that the field so splinters that nobody enters the convention with a commanding lead. We haven't seen that really since 1952 when the convention actually chooses a nominee. And they could even break the rules and pick anyone they want, like Michelle Obama. <laughs> that, would be, that would be amazing. Um, you're working on another book right now, which uh, is going to be equally eye-opening, and it touches on probably one of the biggest issues uh, we have seen uh, in a generation in this country, and that's the Second Amendment. Yes, my book is called Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America. You know, for 200 years plus, the Second Amendment was treated simply as an amendment that provides for the common defense through a well-regulated militia. Even the NRA, and I discovered this in my book, no one's seen this memo, in a 1955 memo from their constitutional expert agreed that that's all the Second Amendment means. Then the NRA hijacked the Second Amendment after the so-called revolt in Cincinnati that installed a new militant leadership and distorted its meaning to give uh, a virtual blank check to the keeping and bearing of arms. And they say this keeps us safe. Well, if they were right, we should be the safest of all democracies, advanced democracies. We are the least safe. A resident of our peer nations in the G7, we are Compared to them, an American is 20 times more likely to be killed by, to be murdered by gunfire than residents in those other nations. Japan, which has the strictest gun control laws, had three gun murders in the last reporting period. America had almost 15,000. Plus, we had 23,000 additional dying from suicide by gunfire. You know, if we were to adopt the kinds of gun controls that are common to every other advanced democracy, we could save literally more than 10,000 lives a year. Now, the title of the book, Repeal the Second Amendment, um, that's going to open some eyes. Yes. Um, it's shocking Yes, that that would be the uh, you know the hypothesis idea um, behind the entire thing. Do you actually believe that the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution could be repealed? Let me answer that in a couple of ways. First of all, the strategy that's so far been adopted by the gun control movement has been an utter failure. We haven't seen anything in 25 years. The assault weapons ban was lapsed. Uh, Mass shootings seem to have no effect on anything. Their strategy has always been, we support the Second Amendment, but, you know, we also support reasonable gun control. Uh, the NRA and the gun lobby just says that's rank hypocrisy. So we need a change. As the late Justice John Paul Stevens pointed out in his op-ed a couple of years ago, the only way we're going to get a change is through a grassroots movement to repeal the Second Amendment, which in effect we live comfortably without for over 200 years. 
even if we don't get repeal, this will reinvigorate the whole movement. And by the way, we have in the past repealed a constitutional amendment. We repealed the Prohibition Amendment because, like the Second Amendment, it proved to be counterproductive, doing the opposite of what it's supposed to. Al Lickman is a American University professor and a political historian. He's been our guest this time on The Heel. Professor, we thank you. Thank you, Tom. All right, we thank you for joining us. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., this has been the On the Hill podcast. We'll talk to you again next time. Volvieron. Los McNugget Buddies are back at McDonald's. Y ahora tienen un nuevo look, diseñado por el streetwear designer Kerwin Frost. Cada buddy tiene su propio vibe, pero cuando el squad está completo, se ven fire. Complete your buddy squad ordenando the Kerwin Frost box. Cada caja incluye un buddy, tu elección de una Big Mac o unos Timpy's Chicken McNuggets, papitas medianas y un refresco mediano. Disponible desde el 11 de diciembre. Para pa pa pa. En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias.